Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. Uh, if, If you were just to give me one book of the Bible, you know, if you were to lock me away in a cell somewhere and say you could have one book, you know, we'd have to say it would be the Bible. One book of the Bible, that's a harder one. That's a harder one, but I'm going to say Romans because I'm preaching Romans right now. But Romans would definitely be on the short list. Uh, give me Romans, and if you give me one chapter in the book of Romans, it would probably be chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And if we had to really, really narrow it down to one verse, it might be the first verse of Romans chapter 8, which we'll cover tonight. Uh, so if you've been tracking with us so far through the book of Romans, our first semester at Quorum Deo, we, we've been going at a pretty quick pace through the book. I mean, there have been times I've covered the entire chapter in one sermon, and so we've been going pretty quickly through it. But this semester, we're going to slow down a bit. Um, we're going to actually take the plan is for six sermons um, in Romans chapter 8 alone. Um, so we're going to go slow down quite significantly, uh, take it all in, um, there's so much here that is vitally important, not for you just to understand doctrinally so that your theology is all neat and tidy, but what I love about Romans 8 is it takes this neat and tidy and deep theology and it applies it to your real life. It applies it to a guilty conscience. What do I do with a guilty conscience? It applies it to do, what do I do when I'm suffering? It applies it to, I don't even know what to pray what do I do? It applies it to all these things. And so Romans chapter 8 takes this deep theology that we all love and I want you guys to latch on to so much and just smashes it into your life. And so hopefully um, these next six sermons will be somewhat of a, a, a comforting wrecking ball in your life that'll destroy some things that have stood in the way of your peace with God and your joy in the midst of trial, and it would press you deeper into God. Uh, That's the goal. That's what I'm hoping God will accomplish here among us. So just a review where we've been. Uh, We started with Romans chapter 1, really looking at what is the gospel of God. Remember we said that the gospel is of God, meaning it's, it's His gospel. He sets the terms of what the gospel is, that we are to learn what the gospel is from God's word and his word alone. And it's also the gospel of God, meaning that it's the good news about God, that this gospel tells us about God. It's a revelation of his character, of his justice and his righteousness and his grace and mercy. It's the revelation of all those things. In the second sermon in Romans chapter 1, we looked at Um, God's wrath as it is revealed on all unrighteousness. And we talked about that suppression of truth that happens because God has revealed His goodness. He's revealed His power in creation. But what do we do as fallen creatures? We take that knowledge that is plainly seen and we suppress it. Suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. We talked about it like a beach ball that you try to hold under the water. It takes so much effort and stress to keep that ball under the water. And so that what our job is as Christians and evangelists and the the Word of God does is it keeps popping that ball to the surface 
And you have two options. Either to confess your sin of suppression of that truth and to cry out to God for salvation and forgiveness, or you keep fighting and keep pushing the ball under. Chapter 2 says that because of this suppression of truth and this idolatry and refusal to worship God, His judgment is inevitable. We will all face judgment uh, before God and no one will escape, neither Jew nor Gentile. Verse 3, we said, in light of all this darkness and this sin and judgment, Jesus was sent into the world to be an epiphany, to be a, a light, to be an epiphany of righteousness. That he comes into the world marked by sin and decay and rebellion. Jesus comes into the world as a bright spot of righteousness from heaven. And he fulfills all righteousness. In verse 4, we, we learned about justification by faith alone, where that righteousness of Christ is then given to those who believe in him by faith. It is imputed to them. It's counted to them as their very own righteousness so that sinners can then stand justified before a holy God. In chapter 5, we said, if that is your position, if you've been justified before a holy God and you have peace with him, then you should be able to have peace in all your circumstances, knowing that your sufferings and your trials are not in vain and they're not random occurrences of chance, but they are the providence of God intent on pushing you towards hope in Him. And in verse, uh, chapter, uh, the later half of chapter 5, we talked about this theological concept called, we call federal headship the representation of Adam as the one who's the one representative of mankind and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who represents all those who are in him. And we said that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no middle ground. And all those in Adam are condemned in their sin and all those in Christ are forgiven and given life. That Death came into the world through Adam, but life, peace comes into the world through Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 6, we answered the objection, well, if I'm saved by grace and I have Christ's righteousness that my sins will be and are forgiven, that means I can just live and do whatever I want. There's no need for obedience. I can just keep on sinning so that God's grace will abound even more. Chapter 6 addresses that and says that's not the case because you were set free from sin. You are now dead to sin. You're dead to its power and that you're actually a slave of whoever, whoever you obey. And so if you call yourself a Christian, yet obey the flesh and obey sin, then that's actually who you belong to. You're actually a slave to your sin. But if you call yourself a Christian and you obey Christ and you uh, follow in a life of righteousness and obedience, then you've been made alive with him. And then, most recently, chapter 7, we looked at this war and this struggle within the life of the believer. Where on one hand, you've been made new and, and you want to please God and you want to live righteously and, and you, you want to put to death sin in your life. But there's this other side of you that seems to be warring against that, that craves sin, that craves disobedience to God. And, and this, we call it, or Paul actually calls it, this flesh versus spirit thing that's going on in your life, waging war. And, and, and what do we do with that? Well, tonight, 
we're in chapter 8, which immediately flows from that context of chapter 7. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original copies of the Bible. Those are later editions just to help us find stuff. But 7 flows seamlessly into 8. And it continues this theme of flesh versus spirit. In chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the, excuse me, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he points out this new way of, of, of serving um, God this new way of the spirit opposed to the flesh points out that it is impossible to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in our flesh. Our flesh is bound to sin and decay, but the spirit gives life and freedom from sin. And we, we continue in that in chapter 8. Chapter 7 ends with this idea of hope for the hopeless. Listen at the dichotomy between verse 24 and 25 in Romans chapter 7. It says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Do you see? The, the gospel just came in like that wrecking ball. Had a man in despair at his inability to please God no matter how hard he tries in his own flesh, and his own strength. And immediately comes in with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. So my goal tonight is to preach this gospel to you guys, to be an encouragement to you, to leave refreshed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus. Um, so let's read the text together. Verses, the first four verses is all we're going to do tonight, and then we'll pray and get into it. This is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word that shows us our sin and our need for a Savior, but so shortly behind proclaims your goodness and mercy in providing that Savior freely to us. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word as you speak to us tonight, and that we would receive this gospel afresh and anew, and maybe for the first time, that you would be glorified in the salvation of sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so our title tonight is No Condemnation. No Condemnation. And we're going to look at it from three angles. First is no condemnation 
presently, no condemnation personally, and no condemnation graciously. So first, no condemnation presently. What I want you to see here is that even in your present struggle with sin, just like we talked about in chapter 7, even in your present struggle with sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not there will be no condemnation once you get yourself together, but there is now no condemnation. The first thing you need to understand tonight is that the gospel will never be good news if it isn't good news now. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 7 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So you must embrace the gospel now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, not after you graduate. Embrace the gospel now because there is therefore now no condemnation. See, you know your past, right? You know your past, but you don't know your future. You don't know if you have a future. But God knows your past and your future. And he stands before you right now in his word, offering you full forgiveness and no condemnation. Not now, no condemnation now, not ever. If you would simply receive it by his grace. So why would you delay? Why would you delay receiving this sentence of no condemnation? I think there are kind of two common reasons uh, that, that most people delay, but especially uh, young people. And the first is you want to live your life. You want to come back to that sentence of no condemnation later. It's kind of like a, a, a savings plan. Right? You just want to tuck that away, put the little uh, Jesus card in your back pocket, and maybe one day you'll call him when you really need him and you've got all the fun stuff out of the way. So you want to live your life. But if you're not in Christ, you're not actually living. You think you are. But the scripture would say that you are dead. That you're living in death. That you really have no spiritual life of your own. You are actually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says... And you were dead. This is speaking of Christians who have been born again, who have believed in Christ. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you're not living if you're living apart from Christ. You are walking in death. Listen to the language that he uses. You're simply following the prince of the power of the world. You're carried along by the passions of your flesh. It's kind of like the hipster joke. When people say that, that hipsters are people who want to be you know, unique just like everyone else. 
you, you want to be just like everyone else. You're flowing in this stream of sin and death. You have no life. Your life is more like a dead fish that floats downstream than one that is living. You're simply following the course of this world. And I think you know that. I think you know that. You know that down deep. That you're just simply following the passions of your flesh. You're following the world. That you aren't actually in control. And that might sound unloving for me to say that about you. That you're dead. You have no spiritual life. <laughs> you're more like a dead fish. That, that is, it's pretty bad. But it's true. What if, what if I um, said that the most loving person who ever lived says the same thing? The most loving, gentle, and lowly person who has ever walked this earth, Jesus. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He didn't mince words. How many of you have ever practiced sin, right? Jesus said, then you are therefore a slave to sin. And there's no, you can't free yourself. You can't escape from this. You're simply following the prince of the power of the air. But two verses over, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You want to know the only way to be freed of this bondage that you feel to sin. Doing things that you know you shouldn't do and you don't want to do, but you do do. I said do do, yes I did. <laughs> but you want to know the only way to be freed from that? It's Jesus. Only the Son can set you free. And if He sets you free, then you will be free indeed. See, that's the part people miss when they get offended by the gospel, when the preacher comes along or the Christian friend comes along and says, you're dead in your sin, you're a slave to sin, you need to be free. It's, it's wait a second, that's offensive. I'm not a slave, I'm free. I'm not dead, I have life. And they totally miss the part that if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Don't you wanna be free indeed? Because the best I can do for myself is maybe a little bit free. And then I'm right back in enslavement. But Jesus says, you'll be free indeed. Why? Because the Son has set you free. The one with all authority and all power has set you free. So apart from Christ, you aren't spiritually alive and you aren't free. And as I said, I think you, you do know that deep down. And if you do know that, and you are beginning to see how you've been deceiving yourself all these years, it may be that God is right now, by His grace, making you alive. And the Son is setting you free. So turn away from your sin. Embrace this forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. How do you receive this sentence of no condemnation? One way. You simply receive it. With empty hands of faith. And that's the hardest thing for a sinner to do. But God makes us able and willing by His Spirit. He sets us free. The second reason why you might be uh, likely to delay coming to Jesus and experiencing this 
uh, no condemnation is because you have a guilty conscience. Because you have a guilty conscience. You won't receive God's sentence of no condemnation because you have condemned yourself. You know that you deserve condemnation for the things that you've done. Are you a better judge than God? Are you wiser than he? More just? More righteous? See, rejecting the gospel of grace because you have judged yourself unworthy is actually the pinnacle of pride cloaked in a false humility. Do you see that? When, when God, the judge of heaven and earth, who does no wrong, looks at you a sinner and offers a sentence of no condemnation and you say, I'm not worthy of that. You have just usurped his role and placed yourself upon the judgment seat. That's idolatry. That's pride. You're a sinner. Christ died to save sinners. Nobody else is going to be saved by Christ but sinners. One of my favorite, I can't really call this a quote because it's like a paragraph, but I guess it is a quote, from Martin Luther, has to, deal with, has to do with how a Christian deals with satanic accusation and a guilty conscience. It's when the devil gets in your ear and reminds you of all your sin and tempts you to despair, tempts you to doubt your salvation, or tempts you to even reject it outright because you're not worthy. This is what Luther says. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ, who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and, thre and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. That is the power of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It disarms the enemy. It disarms Satan. As Luther says, you steal his sword and cut his own throat. It disarms your flesh and your guilty conscience because Christ died for sinners. And you still say, yeah, but I'm a bad sinner. <laughs> He's a great Savior. There's no depth to which he won't go to save those who are his. Take comfort in that. And so there is no reason to delay. 
Come to Jesus now. There is therefore now, presently, no condemnation. And you must come to Jesus for this to be true. This statement of no condemnation isn't just some vague generality that is true of everyone everywhere. This no condemnation is for those who are in Christ Jesus, it says. So salvation is, here's a triggering word, be ready, exclusive. Salvation is exclusive. Not to those who can get in on it. Hear that. Not to those who can get in on it, but from whom it can be received. So when we say salvation is exclusive, it doesn't mean that only certain people can get in on it. Right? It doesn't mean that only people who fit our demographic or think the same way we do, do or look the same way we do can get on it, get in on it. It means that there's only one Savior. There is only one place or one person, rather, in which this salvation can be found. And this will be explained why in verse 3. So just hang with me for a little longer, and, and I will show you my work to prove to you why this can only be true in Jesus Christ. But the moment you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you will be completely forgiven, justified by the righteous judge of heaven and earth. So that's the now. That's the, that is the present application and enjoyment of this sentence of no condemnation. So number two is no condemnation personally. Personally. This salvation isn't because you simply opted in by your autonomous free will into some plan or program of salvation. The believer in Christ is not condemned because he has been personally rescued and redeemed. Look at verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the word you here is singular. See, in the Greek language, the, the second person pronoun there has two different forms for singular and plural, just like good Southern English does, you and y'all. This is not a y'all. This is a you. This is a singular you. And you may say, that's just, you're, you're really kind of looking at being nitpicky here, just one little pronoun, but that's significant. What this means is that Christ doesn't just save a nameless faceless group of hypothetical people. He saves individuals. He saves you. Christ didn't simply make a way of salvation. If you would just opt in, Christ saves. When you believe in Christ for salvation, he comes personally by his spirit to remove your chains of sin and death and sets you free personally individually you know I used to think of salvation like this that God sort of made this plan of salvation let's call it the, the salvation school bus Jesus lived his life and died on the cross which made this salvation school bus come into existence and then whoever gets on the school bus is saved that's how I thought about it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
the Bible teaches that, that God doesn't just make a plan or a way of salvation if you would just get on the bus. He saves you. He rescues you. He walks into the dungeon of sin and death and takes off your chains and sets you free. You see the difference? He sets you free. There's no condemnation for you. So, Christian, you have personally been set free. And if you're not a Christian, it comes with the other implication, is you must personally be set free. It's not good enough for you just to hang out with Christian folks sometimes and, and get your, your Jesus click in while not being personally set free by Jesus. You see? Salvation is personal. Not private, but personal. You see the difference? It's not a private relationship. In other words, if it was just a private relationship, then what are we doing here tonight? It's a corporate reality, but it is personal. Each one of you are here, and each one of you are united to Christ by faith if you believe in him and have been saved by him. I hope you see that. It's important. It's, it's brought so much peace to me because I never knew if I had gotten all the way on the bus or not. Right? Am I really on the salvation bus? Because I seem to be tripping and stumbling and I got in the front door and fell out the back. But if I realize Jesus died on the cross for a specific people. He died on the cross. I believe that. He died for me. It, it changes everything. So I hope you see that. And we'll spend more time unpacking that as we continue in Romans 8. So you've been personally set free. For That kind of begs the question of freed from what? And freed by what or by whom? And, and that's going to be the last point tonight is this no condemnation graciously. It's, it's graciously that you are, verse 2, free from the law of sin and death. So that's what you've been freed from, this law of sin and death. Well, you say, well, what is that? What is the law of sin and death? So what is meant by the word law in verse 2? Some take it to refer to the law of God. In other words, the Mosaic law that we see in the Old Testament. Um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think if that were the case, then, then what is the law of the spirit of life? It seems about these are two different things. What is law of spirit, sin and death, law of spirit of life? I don't think that's what law is referring to here. One of my favorite Bible commentaries uh, defines Paul's use of the word law here like this. It says, an inward principle of action operating with the fixedness and regularity of a law. I'm going to read that again. An inward principle of action operating with the fixedness and regularity of a law. So this law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life is more like the law of gravity than the civil law of the state of Georgia. In other words, this law of sin of death that he's referring to here is not something that you can find in a book. But it's the way things are. It's the way sin and death works. It's more, um, yeah, more like the law of gravity than something on the books. It's the 
the nature of a thing and the actions flowing from that nature. Okay? The nature of a thing and the actions flowing from that nature. In other words, you've been freed from enslavement to your sinful nature. See, it's the same sort of thing. And you've been freed from every sinful manifestation of that sinful nature that leads to death. It's the, the law of sin and death is the way it is. It rolls downhill. It's the way that sin and death operates. Life apart from Christ is destined to death and, and hell. And hell is really basically eternal death and dying. It, it's the law. It's the way it works. It's where you're headed. And Christian, it's where you uh, is where you were headed if you're a Christian and where you are if you're not and continue to reject Christ. It's, it's the law of sin and death. Sin flows from our fallen human natures by the law of sin and death like water flows downhill by the law of gravity. Maybe that's the best illustration. The law of sin and death is the simple outflowing of sin from a sinful nature. It's the way it is. And that's the nature of nature. Water goes downhill. Sin flows from a sinful nature. There's no changing it unless there's a change in nature. In order to get water to go uphill, you either got to pump it or the law of nature has to change. A new nature has to happen. And the good news is that that's exactly what verse 2 is about. That there's another law. You've been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life. You've been freed from your captivity to that fallen, sinful, fleshly nature and have been given a new nature that operates under a new law corresponding to its holy source. You see? The nature of gravity is pull things downhill. The nature of sin and death is to pull things towards death and hell. The nature of the spirit of life is to pull things towards life. It's a reversal. It's a new nature. The inward principle of action of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus is life. And oh, if we would believe this, we wouldn't resist the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't resist obedience to God because we think we're losing out on life if we resist what God wants us to do. But it's God's nature to produce and to be life. You see that? Death flows from your flesh, but life flows from God by His Spirit. I think about the picture in the garden when and Adam's created. Like He's created out of the ground and he's just this, this, this dirt man Right? Adam, lifeless, until what? God breathes into him, and he becomes a living being. That word, Hebrew word for, for breath, wind, and spirit, it's all the same word. And so it's this picture of the Spirit of God bringing life into what is dead or lifeless. This is in his nature to do so. So as sure as water flows downhill, the Holy Spirit of God brings life. And you've been set free by that commitment, that inward principle that operates with a fixedness and regularity like a law. 
As sure as your flesh leads to condemnation and death, God's Spirit in Christ leads to no condemnation and life. And this sentence of no condemnation, thankfully, is all by grace and all by God. It's all by grace and all by God. Look at verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we're just going to walk through these two verses because there's so much there uh, for us to take in. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What law? Here's the word law again. What does it mean here? And I take this reference to the law here to be a reference to the law of God in the Old Testament. This moral law of God, um, because it's not modified by anything. It's not the law of blank or this or that. It's the law. So what law? The law of God. Why was it weak? It's weakened by the flesh. It's not so much that the law was weak. The law is perfect. The problem is that we're the weak ones. Sinful flesh is the problem. That's what weakened the law is our weakness, our inability to keep its righteous requirements, to live up to the standard of the law. Even if you're a pretty good person, like if you're a goody two-shoes, if you're the good one in your family, right, even you can't live up to that righteous requirement of the law. Because the righteous requirement of the law is perfection. Why? Because God is holy. He is perfect. You know that Jesus says that you must be perfect as his Father in heaven is perfect. Again, that's Jesus' expectation. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All of it. Just one point. All of it. Which tells us, and elsewhere in Scripture we see, that the law of God was never meant to save. It was never meant to save anyone, but simply to expose our need of a Savior. Remember, it's the mirror. It shows you the stain. It doesn't remove it. Then it says that God then sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. A couple things here. Remember, it's all of grace and all of God. God sends his own son. He didn't send someone else. It wasn't like he said, hey, Moses, go save them. Hey, David, go save them. Right? No, they were simply servants of God in some ways pointing to Jesus and showing us what Jesus would be like. But in the effective work of salvation, he sends his own son to do it. It's almost like the saying, you know, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And in this case, he's the only one who could do it. He sends his own son. But he sends his son in a very particular way, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean? Well, Jesus came fully man, fully God, fully man. A better phrase here is truly God, truly man. Because can you 
two things actually be full. You see the thing? Truly God, truly man. So everything that, is mean, that it means to be God, Jesus was. Everything and is. And everything that it means to be man, Jesus was and is. You see? So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is important. He didn't come in the likeness of flesh, which is what the Gnostic heresy was, that Jesus just appeared to be flesh because God could never, uh, never desecrate himself by making himself flesh. Pureness and holiness is spirit. So the Gnostics believed that Jesus just appeared to be in flesh. He wasn't actually in flesh. And there's a bit of that kind of in, in um, Islamic theology as well in terms of what happened on the cross. But Jesus didn't just come in the likeness of flesh. He came in real flesh, born of a woman with real body that could suffer and bleed and die. He came not in the likeness of flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's important because Jesus himself wasn't sinful. He was without sin. He was perfectly obedient. Remember, he didn't come from that first Adam. He's born of a virgin. He he's comes without that stain of original sin. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he came to identify with sinners. How does he do that? Well, he fulfills the law of God. He goes and worships in a temple in which sacrifices are offered for his sin that he doesn't have. He said, I identify. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. You know, as, as, uh, as I mentioned when, when Kendall was baptized recently, that, that Jesus in his baptism was identifying with us as sinners. And John's like, what are you doing here being baptized by me? Like, that, that you should be baptizing me. And Jesus tells him to do it because in this way we fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to identify as a sinner in order to be the savior of, sinner, of sinners. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh in a particular way. And then it says, and for sin. And I always kind of struggled, to be honest with you, with what that for sin means. It just reads kind of weird to me. Like verse, what, is, what verse is it? Verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And for sin, what does that mean? Well, this phrase, for sin, the, the Greek words there are used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was basically the Bible of the first century. It was the one that everyone had. It was like the ESV of the early church, you know, um, the Septuagint. That term, for sin there, is what is used of the sin offerings in the temple. So, for example, in the Day of Atonement, the goat was given for sin. You see that? Uh, I think that's Leviticus chapter 16. It was a for sin offering. It was for sin. So Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, as a sacrifice for that sin. And then what did he do? He condemned sin. He condemned sin. And I'll, I've never thought about it in this way until this week studying for this. Verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's not condemned you. He condemns sin. You see that? That's, uh, to me, that's glorious. He condemned sin as this sin offering. And he did it in the flesh. 
in a real way. Why in the flesh? Because as we said, that was the righteous requirement of the law. Humans need a human savior. Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Right? These sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament were meant to be pictures. They, were ne they could never truly atone for any human sin. It required a human sacrifice who was righteous, which goes back to that point earlier. Why is salvation only found in Jesus Christ? Because he's the only one who was in the likeness of sinful flesh that wasn't actually sinful, and he's the only one who has condemned sin in the flesh. He's the only one who has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. No one else has done that. All other religions of the world offer their religious leaders as good examples, good teachers, good moral guides. Only Christianity has a Savior. Only Christianity has a Savior. And so, now, since he has condemned sin in the flesh, by faith, his obedience, his righteous obedience. And in theology, we talk about the obedience of Christ in two terms, active and passive. His active obedience is his life of conformity to the law of God. In other words, his living life righteously, never sinning, doing all that God required. That's his active obedience. They also obeyed passively. Passio means to, to suffer. The passive obedience of Jesus refers to his suffering on the cross. And so, by faith now, his righteous obedience, active and passive, is then imputed, remember chapter 4, transferred, imputed to us, so that we then walk, not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit. And when we do that, we are counted as righteous, because Jesus is our place. He's our sin offering. Such a glorious two verses to follow that flow, follow that logic. This is what I'm talking about. This is theology. This is one, two, three, four, five. These are logical propositions. And you can say, man, theology is so dry and boring. You're just talking about like A plus B equals C. But that's not what this is about. This, this is theology that ends with going, glory be to God, I'm saved. There's no condemnation for me. Why? I have no fear. Why? Because Jesus has been offered as a sacrifice for my sins. It's completely atoned for. I have his active and passive obedience, meaning I don't have to live up to some sort of standard in order for God to love me because Jesus' active obedience is there for me to claim. And I don't have to beat my sin, myself up for my sins or make myself suffer because of my sins because I have Jesus' passive obedience, his suffering in my place. See, theology matters. Theology informs your life. It gives you a foundation and an engine to live the rest of your life from that point. It's why the name of our organization is Coram Deo Christian Fellowship. Because we want to live our life before the face of God with an awareness of how we fit into the story of redemption that God is writing in this world for his own glory in every little part. So as we wind down, this salvation is all of grace, all of God. There's no condemnation is graciously given. 
and I ask the question, how serious about the salvation of serious sinners like you and I is God? How serious is God about the salvation of serious sinners like you and I? He's so serious that he himself saw to its accomplishment. He himself saw to its accomplishment. Look closely at this passage. These first four verses. You'll see each person of the Godhead represented. Each person of the Trinity at work in the accomplishment of the of redemption of his people. You got, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in who? Christ Jesus. We see the Son as the sacrifice for sin. Who set us free? The Spirit of life. And who sent his Son? God the Father. Uh, Dr. James White refers to uh, this idea as Trinitarian harmony in redemption. Trinitarian harmony in redemption. That God the Father sends His Son to atone for the sins of His people and sends His Spirit then to apply that work of salvation to those particular individuals. Later we'll see that those whom the Father foreknew and loves and calls, the Spirit regenerates and seals and glorifies. It's all this beautiful system of salvation that hits you right now. Hits you where you're at, personally, all by the grace of God and for His glory. So God isn't holding anything back he gave his own son, who's given his spirit of life. He's fulfilled the righteous requirement of law, both in obtaining a positive righteousness and in suffering death upon a cross under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. So if God isn't holding anything back, what are you waiting on? Come to Jesus. Repent and believe this gospel. If you haven't been, be saved tonight, now is the time of no condemnation. And if you believe in Him, know that He has saved you. He saved you knowing your sinful nature, knowing every skeleton in your closet, and knowing the full weight of every piece of baggage you bring to the table. He knows it because it was all placed upon His shoulders on the cross. Your sins, your weight, your guilt, your condemnation. He took it all. He claimed it and he condemned it to hell and set you free. He condemned it, your guilt, your shame, your baggage, condemned it and set you free. So trust Him. Repent of your doubt and believe this gospel. And finally, give all glory to God. Worship Him. He made a way when there was no way. He alone did what you and everyone else couldn't do. Your life and your salvation yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and is ever 
will be all of grace and all of God. So believe this gospel and live for him. Let us pray. God, we thank you that we can say these things and know without doubt that they are true. That you are God and you are good. That you are the Savior of sinners. That, that saving sinners is not beneath you, but it is the way you seek to magnify your glory all the more. So God, we ask that our lives would be trophies of your grace. That we would stop pretending that, that we have fit all together, that we are somehow righteous, that we have the ability um, to please you and to, to be good in and of ourselves. And that we would give you all glory and put all of our, our, our boasting in you. And God, we ask that you would build upon this foundation of no condemnation, fruitful lives of gospel ministry. God, I pray for each student here who is taking seriously this word and how it applies in their life. If they, if they need to receive this message of no condemnation for the first time or, or believe it freshly, God, I pray that your spirit would bring that word to life in their hearts. We know that we are hopeless in our own strength and our own flesh to accomplish any good thing. But if you will it to be, it will be. And so God, I ask you through the merit of your son Jesus to work mightily unto salvation for your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen.